What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 10 of The Jungle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 10. During the early part of the winter, the family had had money enough to live and a little over to pay their debts with. But when the earnings of Jurgis fell from nine or ten dollars a week to five or six, there was no longer anything to spare. The winter went and the spring came, and found them still living thus from hand to mouth, hanging on day by day with literally not a month's wages between them and starvation. Maria was in despair, for there was still no word about the reopening of the canning factory, and her savings were almost entirely gone. She had had to give up all idea of marrying then. The family could not get along without her though for that matter she was likely soon to become a burden even upon them, for when her money was all gone they would have to pay back what they owed her in board. So Jurgis and Ona and Teta Elzbeta would hold anxious conferences until late at night, trying to figure out how they could manage this, too, without starving. Such were the cruel terms upon which their life was possible, that they might never have nor expect a single instant's respite from worry, a single instant in which they were not haunted by the thought of money. They would no sooner escape as by a miracle from one difficulty than a new one would come into view. In addition to all their physical hardships there was thus a constant strain upon their minds. They were harried all day and nearly all night by worry and fear. This was in truth not living. It was scarcely even existing, and they felt that it was too little for the price they paid. They were willing to work all the time, and when people did their best ought they not to be able to keep alive? There seemed never to be an end to the things they had to buy and to the unforeseen contingencies. Once their water-pipes froze and burst, and when, in their ignorance, they thawed them out they had a terrifying flood in their house. It happened while the men were away, and poor Elzbeta rushed out into the street screaming for help, for she did not even know whether the flood could be stopped, or whether they were ruined for life. It was nearly as bad as the latter, they found in the end, for the plumber charged them seventy-five cents an hour, and seventy-five cents for another man who had stood and watched him, and included all the time 
the two had been going and coming, and also a charge for all sorts of materials and extras. And then again, when they went to pay their January's installment on the house, the agent terrified them by asking them if they had had the insurance attended to yet. In answer to their inquiry, he showed them a clause in the deed which provided that they were to keep the house insured for one thousand dollars as soon as the present policy ran out, which would happen in a few days. Poor Elzbieta, upon whom again fell the blow, demanded how much it would cost them. Seven dollars, the man said, and that night came Jurgis, grim and determined, requesting that the agent would be good enough to inform him, once and for all, as to all the expenses they were liable for. The deed was signed now, he said, with sarcasm proper to the new way of life he had learned. The deed was signed, and so the agent had no longer anything to gain by keeping quiet. And Jurgis looked the fellow squarely in the eye. And so the fellow wasted no time in conventional protests, but read him the deed. They would have to renew the insurance every year. They would have to pay the taxes, about ten dollars a year. They would have to pay the water tax, about six dollars a year. Jurgis silently resolved to shut off the hydrant. This, besides the interest and the monthly installments, would be all, unless by chance the city should happen to decide to put in a sewer or to lay a sidewalk. Yes, said the agent, they would have to have these whether they wanted them or not, if the city said so. The sewer would cost them about twenty-two dollars, and the sidewalk fifteen if it were wood, twenty-five if it were cement. So Jurgis went home again. It was a relief to know the worst at any rate, so that he could no more be surprised by fresh demands. He saw now how they had been plundered, but they were in for it. There was no turning back. They could only go on and make the fight and win, for defeat was a thing that could not even be thought of. When the springtime came they were delivered from the dreadful cold, and that was a great deal. But in addition they had counted on the money they would not have to pay for coal, and it was just at this time that Maria's board began to fail. Then, too, the warm weather brought trials of its own. Each season had its trials, as they found. In the spring there were cold rains that turned the streets into canals and bogs. The mud would be so deep that wagons would sink up to the hubs, so that half a dozen horses could not move them. Then, of course, it was impossible for anyone to get to work with dry feet, and this was bad for men that were poorly clad and shod, and still worse for women and children. Later came midsummer, with the stifling heat, when the dingy killing beds of Durham's became a very purgatory. One time, in a single day, three men fell dead from sunstroke. All day long the rivers of hot blood poured forth, until, with the sun beating down and the air motionless, the stench was enough to knock a man over. All the old smells of a generation would be drawn out by this heat, for there was never any washing of the walls and rafters and pillars, and they were caked with the filth of a lifetime. The men who worked on the killing beds would come to reek with foulness, so that you could smell one of them fifty feet away. There was simply no such thing as keeping decent. The most careful man 
gave it up in the end, and wallowed in uncleanness. There was not even a place where a man could wash his hands, and the men ate as much raw blood as food at dinner-time. When they were at work they could not even wipe off their faces, they were as helpless as newly-born babes in that respect. And it may seem like a small matter, but when the sweat began to run down their necks and tickle them, or a fly to bother them, it was a torture like being burned alive. Whether it was the slaughterhouses or the dumps that were responsible one could not say, but with the hot weather there descended upon Packingtown a veritable Egyptian plague of flies. There could be no describing this. The houses would be black with them. There was no escaping. You might provide all your doors and windows with screens, but their buzzing outside would be like the swarming of bees, and whenever you opened the door they would rush in as if a storm of wind were driving them. Perhaps the summertime suggests to you thoughts of the country, visions of green fields and mountains and sparkling lakes. It had no such suggestion for the people in the yards. The great packing machine ground on remorselessly, without thinking of green fields, and the men and women and children who were part of it never saw any green thing, not even a flower. Four or five miles to the east of them lay the blue waters of Lake Michigan, but for all the good it did them it might have been as far away as the Pacific Ocean. They had only Sundays, and then they were too tired to walk. They were tied to the great packing machine, and tied to it for life. The managers and superintendents and clerks of Packingtown were all recruited from another class, and never from the workers. They scorned the workers, the very meanest of them. A poor devil of a bookkeeper who had been working in Durham's for twenty years at a salary of six dollars a week, and might work there for twenty more and do no better, would yet consider himself a gentleman, as far removed as the poles from the most skilled worker on the killing beds. He would dress differently, and live in another part of the town, and come to work at a different hour of the day, and in every way make sure that he never rubbed elbows with a laboring man. Perhaps this was due to the repulsiveness of the work. At any rate, the people who worked with their hands were a class apart, and were made to feel it. In the late spring the canning factory started up again, and so once more Maria was heard to sing, and the love-music of Timotius took on a less melancholy tone. It was not for long, however, for a month or two later a dreadful calamity fell upon Maria. Just one year and three days after she had begun work as a can-painter she lost her job. It was a long story. Maria insisted that it was because of her activity in the Union. The packers, of course, had spies in all the unions, and in addition they made a practice of buying up a certain number of the Union officials, as many as they thought they needed. So every week they received reports as to what was going on, and often they knew things before the members of the Union knew them. Anyone who was considered to be dangerous by them would find that he was not a favorite with his boss, and Maria had been a great hand for going after the foreign people and preaching to them. However that might be, 
the known facts were that a few weeks before the factory closed maria had been cheated out of her pay for three hundred cans the girls worked at a long table and behind them walked a woman with pencil and notebook keeping count of the number they finished this woman was of course only human and sometimes made mistakes when this happened there was no redress if on saturday you got less money than you had earned you had to make the best of it but maria did not understand this and made a disturbance maria's disturbances did not mean anything and while she had known only lithuanian and polish they had done no harm for people only laughed at her and made her cry but now maria was able to call names in english and so she got the woman who made the mistake to disliking her probably as maria claimed she made mistakes on purpose after that at any rate she made them and the third time it happened maria went on the warpath and took the matter first to the poor lady and when she got no satisfaction there to the superintendent this was unheard of presumption but the superintendent said he would see about it which maria took to mean that she was going to get her money after waiting three days she went to see the superintendent again this time the man frowned and said that he had not had time to attend to it and when maria against the advice and warning of every one tried it once more he ordered her back to her work in a passion just how things happened after that maria was not sure but that afternoon the forelady told her that her services would not be any longer required poor maria could not have been more dumbfounded had the woman knocked her over the head at first she could not believe what she heard and then she grew furious and swore that she would come anyway that her place belonged to her in the end she sat down in the middle of the floor and wept and wailed it was a cruel lesson but then maria was headstrong she should have listened to those who had had experience the next time she would know her place as the forelady expressed it and so maria went out and the family faced the problem of an existence again it was especially hard this time for ona was to be confined before long and jurgis was trying hard to save up money for this he had heard dreadful stories of the midwives who grow as thick as fleas in packingtown and he had made up his mind that ona must have a man-doctor jurgis could be very obstinate when he wanted to and he was in this case much to the dismay of the women who felt that a man-doctor was an impropriety and that the matter really belonged to them the cheapest doctor they could find would charge them fifteen dollars and perhaps more when the bill came in and here was jurgis declaring that he would pay it even if he had to stop eating in the meantime maria had only about twenty-five dollars left day after day she wandered about the yards begging a job but this time without hope of finding it maria could do the work of an able-bodied man when she was cheerful but discouragement wore her out easily and she would come home at night a pitiable object she learned her lesson this time poor creature she learned it ten times over all the family learned it along with her that when you have once got a job in packingtown you hang on to it come what will 
four weeks Maria hunted, and half of a fifth week. Of course she stopped paying her dues to the Union. She lost all interest in the Union, and cursed herself for a fool that she had ever been dragged into one. She had about made up her mind that she was a lost soul when somebody told her of an opening, and she went and got a place as a beef trimmer. She got this because the boss saw that she had the muscles of a man, and so he discharged the man and put Maria to do his work, paying her a little more than half what he had been paying before. When she first came to Packingtown, Maria would have scorned such work as this. She was in another canning factory, and her work was to trim the meat of those diseased cattle that Jurgis had been told about not long before. She was shut up in one of the rooms where the people seldom saw the daylight. Beneath her were the chilling rooms where the meat was frozen, and above her were the cooking rooms. And so she stood on an ice-cold floor while her head was often so hot that she could scarcely breathe. Trimming beef off the bones by the hundredweight, while standing up from early morning till late at night, with heavy boots on and the floor always damp and full of puddles, liable to be thrown out of work indefinitely because of a slackening in the trade, liable again to be kept overtime in rush seasons, and be worked till she trembled in every nerve and lost her grip on her slimy knife, and gave herself a poisoned wound. That was the new life that unfolded itself before Maria. But because Maria was a human horse, she merely laughed and went at it. It would enable her to pay her board again, and keep the family going. And as for Timotius, well, they had waited a long time, and they could wait a little longer. They could not possibly get along upon his wages alone, and the family could not live without hers. He would come and visit her, and sit in the kitchen and hold her hand, and he must manage to be content with that. But day by day the music of Timotius' violin became more passionate and heartbreaking, and Maria would sit with her hands clasped and her cheeks wet, and all her body a-tremble, hearing in the wailing melodies the voices of the unborn generations which cried out in her for life. Maria's lesson came just in time to save Ona from a similar fate. Ona, too, was dissatisfied with her place, and had far more reason than Maria. She did not tell half of her story at home, because she saw it was a torment to Jurgis, and she was afraid of what he might do. For a long time Ona had seen that Miss Henderson, the forelady in her department, did not like her. At first she thought it was the old-time mistake she had made in asking for a holiday to get married. Then she concluded it must be because she did not give the forelady a present occasionally. She was the kind that took presents from the girls, Ona learned, and made all sorts of discriminations in favor of those who gave them. In the end, however, Ona discovered that it was even worse than that. Miss Henderson was a newcomer, and it was some time before rumor made her out but finally it transpired that she was a kept woman, the former mistress of the superintendent of a department in the same building. He had put her there to keep her quiet, it seemed, and that not altogether with success, for once or twice they had been heard quarreling. She had the temper of a hyena, and soon the place she ran was a witch's cauldron. 
There were some of the girls who were of her own sort, who were willing to toady to her and flatter her, and these would carry tales about the rest, and so the Furies were unchained in the place. Worse than this, the woman lived in a bawdy house downtown, with a coarse red-faced Irishman named Connor, who was the boss of the loading gang outside, and would make free with the girls as they went to and from their work. In the slack seasons some of them would go with Miss Henderson to this house downtown. In fact, it would not be too much to say that she managed her department at Brown's in conjunction with it. Sometimes women from the house would be given places alongside of decent girls, and after other decent girls had been turned off to make room for them. When you worked in this woman's department, the house downtown was never out of your thoughts all day. There were always whiffs of it to be caught, like the odor of the Packingtown rendering plants at night when the wind shifted suddenly. There would be stories about it going the rounds. The girls opposite you would be telling them and winking at you. In such a place Ona would not have stayed a day but for starvation, and, as it was, she was never sure that she could stay the next day. She understood now that the real reason that Miss Henderson hated her was that she was a decent married girl, and she knew that the tale-bearers and the toadies hated her for the same reason, and were doing their best to make her life miserable. But there was no place a girl could go in Packingtown, if she was particular about things of this sort. There was no place in it where a prostitute could not get along better than a decent girl. Here was a population, low-class and mostly foreign, hanging always on the verge of starvation, and dependent for its opportunities of life upon the whim of men every bit as brutal and unscrupulous as the old-time slave-drivers. Under such circumstances immorality was exactly as inevitable, and as prevalent as it was under the system of chattel slavery. Things that were quite unspeakable went on there in the packing-houses all the time, and were taken for granted by everybody. Only they did not show, as in the old slavery times, because there was no difference in color between master and slave. One morning Ona stayed home, and Jurgis had the man-doctor according to his whim, and she was safely delivered of a fine baby. It was an enormous big boy and Ona was such a tiny creature herself that it seemed quite incredible. Jurgis would stand and gaze at the stranger by the hour, unable to believe that it had really happened. The coming of this boy was a decisive event with Jurgis. It made him irrevocably a family man. It killed the last lingering impulse that he might have had to go out in the evenings and sit and talk with the men in the saloons. There was nothing he cared for now so much as to sit and look at the baby. This was very curious, for Jurgis had never been interested in babies before, but then this was a very unusual sort of a baby. He had the brightest little black eyes and little black ringlets all over his head. He was the living image of his father, everybody said, and Jurgis found this a fascinating circumstance. It was sufficiently perplexing that this tiny mite of life should have come into the world at all in the manner that it had, that it should have come 
with a comical imitation of its father's nose was simply uncanny. Perhaps, Jurgis thought, this was intended to signify that it was his baby, that it was his and Ona's, to care for all its life. Jurgis had never possessed anything nearly so interesting. A baby was, when you came to think about it, assuredly a marvelous possession. It would grow up to be a man, a human soul, with a personality all its own, a will of its own. Such thoughts would keep haunting Jurgis, filling him with all sorts of strange and almost painful excitements. He was wonderfully proud of little Antonas. He was curious about all the details of him, the washing and the dressing and the eating and the sleeping of him, and asked all sorts of absurd questions. It took him quite a while to get over his alarm at the incredible shortness of the little creature's legs. Jurgis had, alas, very little time to see his baby. He never felt the chains about him more than just then. When he came home at night the baby would be asleep, and it would be the merest chance if he awoke before Jurgis had to go to sleep himself. Then in the morning there was no time to look at him, so really the only chance the father had was on Sundays. This was more cruel yet for Ona, who ought to have stayed home and nursed him, the doctor said, for her own health as well as the baby's, but Ona had to go to work, and leave him for Teta Elsbeta to feed upon the pale blue poison that was called milk at the corner grocery. Ona's confinement lost her only a week's wages. She would go to the factory the second Monday, and the best that Jurgis could persuade her was to ride in the car and let him run along behind, and help her to Brown's when she alighted. After that it would be all right, said Ona. It was no strain sitting still, sewing hands all day, and if she waited longer she might find that her dreadful forelady had put someone else in her place. That would be a greater calamity than ever now, Ona continued, on account of the baby. They would all have to work harder now on his account. It was such a responsibility they must not have the baby grow up to suffer as they had, and this indeed had been the first thing that Jurgis had thought of himself. He had clenched his hands and braced himself anew for the struggle, for the sake of that tiny might of human possibility. And so Ona went back to Brown's and saved her place and a week's wages, and so she gave herself some one of the thousand ailments that women group under the title of womb trouble and was never again a well person as long as she lived. It is difficult to convey in words all that this meant to Ona. It seemed such a slight offense, and the punishment was so out of all proportion, that neither she nor anyone else ever connected the two. Womb trouble to Ona did not mean a specialist diagnosis and a course of treatment, and perhaps an operation or two. It meant simply headaches and pains in the back, and depression, and heart-sickness, and neuralgia when she had to go to work in the rain. The great majority of the women who worked in Packingtown suffered in the same way, and from the same cause, so it was not deemed a thing to see the doctor about. Instead, Ona would try patent medicines, one after the other, as her friends told her about them. As these all contained alcohol, or some other stimulant, she found that they all did her good while she took them, 
and so she was always chasing the phantom of good health and losing it because she was too poor to continue end of chapter 10 recording by tom weiss chapter 11 of the jungle this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tom weiss the jungle by upton sinclair chapter 11 during the summer the packing-houses were in full activity again, and Jurgis made more money. He did not make so much, however, as he had the previous summer, for the packers took on more hands. There were new men every week, it seemed. It was a regular system, and this number they would keep over to the next slack season, so that everyone would have less than ever. Sooner or later, by this plan, they would have all the floating labor of Chicago trained to do their work, and how very cunning a trick was that! The men were to teach new hands, who would some day come and break their strike, and meantime they were kept so poor that they could not prepare for the trial. But let no one suppose that this superfluity of employees meant easier work for any one. On the contrary the speeding up seemed to be growing more savage all the time. They were continually inventing new devices to crowd the work on. It was for all the world like the thumbscrew of the medieval torture chamber. They would get new pacemakers and pay them more. They would drive the men on with new machinery. It was said that in the hog-killing rooms the speed at which the hogs moved was determined by clockwork and that it was increased a little every day. In piecework they would reduce the time, requiring the same work in a shorter time, and paying the same wages, and then after the workers had accustomed themselves to this new speed they would reduce the rate of payment to correspond with the reduction in time. They had done this so often in the canning establishments that the girls were fairly desperate. Their wages had gone down by a full third in the past two years, and a storm of discontent was brewing that was likely to break any day. Only a month after Maria had become a beef trimmer the canning factory that she had left posted a cut that would divide the girls' earnings almost squarely in half, and so great was the indignation at this that they marched outside without even a parley and organized in the street outside. One of the girls had read somewhere that a red flag was the proper symbol for oppressed workers, and so they mounted one, and paraded all about the yards, yelling with rage. A new union was the result of this outburst, but the impromptu strike went to pieces in three days, owing to the rush of new labor. At the end of it the girl who had carried the red flag went downtown and got a position in a great department store at a salary of two dollars and a half a week. Jurgis and Ona heard these stories with dismay, for there was no telling when their own time might come. Once or twice there had been rumors that one of the big houses was going to cut its unskilled men to fifteen cents an hour, and Jurgis knew that if this was done his turn would come soon. He had learned by this time that Packingtown was really not a number of firms at all but one great firm, the Beef Trust, 
and every week the managers of it got together and compared notes, and there was one scale for all the workers in the yards and one standard of efficiency. Jurgis was told that they also fixed the price they would pay for beef on the hoof, and the price of all dressed meat in the country, but that was something he did not understand or care about. The only one who was not afraid of a cut was Maria, who congratulated herself, somewhat naively, that there had been one in her place only a short time before she came. Maria was getting to be a skilled beef-trimmer, and was mounting to the heights again. During the summer and fall Jurgis and Ona managed to pay her back the last penny they owed her, and so she began to have a bank account. Timotius had a bank account also, and they ran a race, and began to figure upon household expenses once more. The possession of vast wealth entails cares and responsibilities, however, as poor Maria found out. She had taken the advice of a friend and invested her savings in a bank on Ashland Avenue. Of course she knew nothing about it, except that it was big and imposing. What possible chance has a poor foreign working girl to understand the banking business as it is conducted in this land of frenzied finance? So Maria lived in a continual dread lest something should happen to her bank, and would go out of her way mornings to make sure that it was still there. Her principal thought was of fire, for she had deposited her money in bills, and was afraid that if they were burned up the bank would not give her any others. Jurgis made fun of her for this, for he was a man and was proud of his superior knowledge, telling her that the bank had fireproof vaults, and all its millions of dollars hidden safely away in them. However, one morning Maria took her usual detour and, to her horror and dismay, saw a crowd of people in front of the bank, filling the avenue solid for half a block. All the blood went out of her face for terror. She broke into a run, shouting to the people to ask what was the matter, but not stopping to hear what they answered, till she had come to where the throng was so dense that she could no longer advance. There was a run on the bank, they told her then, but she did not know what that was, and turned from one person to another, trying in an agony of fear to make out what they meant. Had something gone wrong with the bank? Nobody was sure, but they thought so. Couldn't she get her money? There was no telling, the people were afraid not, and they were all trying to get it. It was too early yet to tell anything the bank would not open for nearly three hours. So, in a frenzy of despair, Maria began to claw her way toward the doors of this building, through a throng of men, women, and children, all as excited as herself. It was a scene of wild confusion, women shrieking and wringing their hands and fainting, and men fighting and trampling down everything in their way. In the midst of the melee Maria recollected that she did not have her bank-book, and could not get her money anyway, so she fought her way out and started on a run for home. This was fortunate for her, for a few minutes later the police reserves arrived. In half an hour Maria was back, Teta Elzbeta with her, both of them breathless with running and sick with fear. The crowd was now formed in a line extending for several blocks, 
with half a hundred policemen keeping guard, and so there was nothing for them to do but to take their places at the end of it. At nine o'clock the bank opened and began to pay the waiting throng, but then what good did that do Maria, who saw three thousand people before her, enough to take out the last penny of a dozen banks? To make matters worse, a drizzling rain came up and soaked them to the skin. Yet all the morning they stood there, creeping slowly toward the goal. All the afternoon they stood there, heartsick, seeing that the hour of closing was coming, and that they were going to be left out. Maria made up her mind that, come what might, she would stay there and keep her place. But as nearly all did the same, all through the long cold night she got very little closer to the bank for that. Toward evening Jurgis came. He had heard the story from the children, and he brought some food and dry wraps, which made it a little easier. The next morning, before daybreak, came a bigger crowd than ever, and more policemen from downtown. Maria held on like grim death, and toward afternoon she got into the bank and got her money, all in big silver dollars, a handkerchief full. When she had once got her hands on them her fear vanished, and she wanted to put them back again, but the man at the window was savage, and said that the bank would receive no more deposits from those who had taken part in the run. So Maria was forced to take her dollars home with her, watching to right and left, expecting every instant that someone would try to rob her, and when she got home she was not much better off. Until she could find another bank there was nothing to do but sew them up in her clothes, and so Maria went about for a week or more, loaded down with bullion and afraid to cross the street in front of the house, because Jurgis told her she would sink out of sight in the mud. Waited this way she made her way to the yards, again in fear, this time to see if she had lost her place but fortunately about ten per cent of the working people of Packingtown had been depositors in that bank, and it was not convenient to discharge that many at once. The cause of the panic had been the attempt of a policeman to arrest a drunken man in a saloon next door, which had drawn a crowd at the hour the people were on their way to work, and so started the run. About this time Jurgis and Ona also began a bank account, Besides having paid Jonas and Maria, they had almost paid for their furniture, and could have that little sum to count on. So long as each of them could bring home nine or ten dollars a week, they were able to get along finely. Also election day came round again, and Jurgis made half a week's wages out of that, all net profit. It was a very close election that year, and the echoes of the battle reached even to Packingtown. The two rival sets of grafters hired halls and set off fireworks and made speeches to try to get the people interested in the matter. Although Jurgis did not understand it all, he knew enough by this time to realize that it was not supposed to be right to sell your vote. However, as everyone did it, and his refusal to join would not have made the slightest difference in the results, the idea of refusing would have seemed absurd had it ever come into his head. 
Now chill winds and shortening days began to warn them that the winter was coming again. It seemed as if the respite had been too short. They had not had time enough to get ready for it. But still it came, inexorably, and the haunted look began to come back into the eyes of little Stanislavus. The prospect struck fear to the heart of Jurgis also, for he knew that Ona was not fit to face the cold and the snowdrifts this year, and supposed that some day when a blizzard struck them and the cars were not running, Ona should have to give up, and should come the next day to find that her place had been given to someone who lived nearer and could be depended on. It was the week before Christmas that the first storm came, and then the soul of Jurgis rose up within him like a sleeping lion. There were four days that the Ashland Avenue cars were stalled, and in those days, for the first time in his life, Jurgis knew what it was to be really opposed. He had faced difficulties before, but they had been child's play. Now there was a death struggle, and all the furies were unchained within him. The first morning they set out two hours before dawn. Ona wrapped up all in blankets and tossed upon his shoulder like a sack of meal, and the little boy, bundled nearly out of sight, hanging by his coat-tails. There was a raging blast beating in his face, and the thermometer stood below zero. The snow was never short of his knees, and in some drifts it was nearly up to his armpits. It would catch his feet and try to trip him. It would build itself into a wall before him to beat him back, and he would fling himself into it, plunging like a wounded buffalo, puffing and snorting in rage. So, foot by foot, he drove his way and when at last he came to Durham's he was staggering and almost blind, and leaned against a pillar gasping, and thanking God that the cattle came late to the killing beds that day. In the evening the same thing had to be done again, and because Jurgis could not tell what hour of the night he would get off, he got a saloon-keeper to let Ona sit and wait for him in a corner. Once it was eleven o'clock at night, and black as the pit, but still they got home. That blizzard knocked many a man out, for the crowd outside begging for work was never greater, and the packers would not wait long for anyone. When it was over the soul of Jurgis was a song, for he had met the enemy and conquered, and felt himself the master of his fate. So it might be with some monarch of the forest that has vanquished his foes in fair fight and then falls into some cowardly trap in the night-time. A time of peril on the killing fields was when a steer broke loose. Sometimes, in the haste of speeding up, they would dump one of the animals out on the floor before it was fully stunned, and it would get upon its feet and run amuck. Then there would be a yell of warning, the men would drop everything and dash for the nearest pillar, slipping here and there on the floor and tumbling over each other. This was bad enough in the summer, when a man could see. In winter time, it was enough to make your hair stand up, for the room would be so full of steam that you could not make anything out five feet in front of you. To be sure, the steer was generally blind and frantic, and not especially bent on hurting anyone. But think of the chances of running upon a knife, 
while nearly every man had one in his hand. And then, to cap the climax, the floor boss would come rushing up with a rifle and begin blazing away. It was in one of these melees that Jurgis fell into his trap. That is the only word to describe it. It was so cruel and so utterly not to be foreseen. At first he hardly noticed it. It was such a slight accident. Simply that in leaping out of the way he turned his ankle. There was a twinge of pain, but Jurgis was used to pain and did not coddle himself. When he came to walk home, however, he realized that it was hurting him a great deal, and in the morning his ankle was swollen out nearly double its size, and he could not get his foot into his shoe. Still, even then, he did nothing more than swear a little, and wrapped his foot in old rags and hobbled out to take the car. It chanced to be a rush day at Durham's, and all the long morning he limped about with his aching foot. By noontime the pain was so great that it made him faint, and after a couple of hours in the afternoon he was fairly beaten and had to tell the boss. They sent for the company doctor, and he examined the foot and told Jurgis to go home to bed, adding that he had probably laid himself up for months by his folly. The injury was not one that Durham and company could be held responsible for, and so that was all there was to it, so far as the doctor was concerned. Jurgis got home somehow, scarcely able to see for the pain, and with an awful terror in his soul, Elzbeta helped him into bed and bandaged his injured foot with cold water and tried hard not to let him see her dismay. When the rest came home at night she met them outside and told them, and they too put on a cheerful face, saying it would only be for a week or two, and that they would pull him through. When they had gotten him to sleep, however, they sat by the kitchen fire and talked it over in frightened whispers. They were in for a siege. That was plainly to be seen. Jurgis had only about sixty dollars in the bank, and the slack season was upon them. Both Jonas and Maria might soon be earning no more than enough to pay their board, and besides that there were only the wages of Ona and the pittance of the little boy. There was the rent to pay, and still some on the furniture. There was the insurance just due, and every month there was sack after sack of coal. It was January, midwinter, an awful time to have to face privation. Deep snows would come again, and who would carry Ona to her work now? She might lose her place, she was almost certain to lose it. And then little Stanislovas began to whimper. Who would take care of him? It was dreadful that an accident of this sort, that no man can help, should have meant such suffering. The bitterness of it was the daily food and drink of Jurgis. It was of no use for them to try to deceive him. He knew as much about the situation as they did, and he knew that the family might literally starve to death. The worry of it fairly ate him up. He began to look haggard the first two or three days of it. In truth, it was almost maddening for a strong man like him, a fighter, to have to lie there helpless on his back. It was for all the world the old story of Prometheus bound. As Jurgis lay on his bed, hour after hour, 
there came to him emotions that he had never known before. Before this he had met life with a welcome. It had its trials, but none that a man could not face. But now, in the night-time, when he lay tossing about, there would come stalking into his chamber a grisly phantom, the sight of which made his flesh curl and his hair to bristle up. It was like seeing the world fall away from underneath his feet, like plunging down into a bottomless abyss into yawning caverns of despair. It might be true, then, after all, what others had told him about life, that the best powers of a man might not be equal to it. It might be true that, strive as he would, toil as he would, he might fail and go down and be destroyed. The thought of this was like an icy hand at his heart, the thought that here, in this ghastly home of all horror, he and all those who were dear to him might lie and perish of starvation and cold, and there would be no ear to hear their cry, no hand to help them. It was true, it was true, that here in this huge city, with its stores of heaped-up wealth, human creatures might be hunted down and destroyed by the wild beast powers of nature, just as truly as ever they were in the days of the cavemen. Ona was now making about thirty dollars a month, and Stanislavus about thirteen. To add to this there was the board of Jonas and Maria, about forty-five dollars. Deducting this from the rent, interest, and installments on the furniture, they had left sixty dollars, and deducting the coal, they had fifty. They did without everything that human beings could do without. They went in old and ragged clothing that left them at the mercy of the cold, and when the children's shoes wore out they tied them up with string. Half-invalid as she was, Ona would do herself harm by walking in the rain and cold when she ought to have ridden. They bought literally nothing but food, and still they could not keep alive on fifty dollars a month. They might have done it, if only they could have gotten pure food and at fair prices, or if only they had known what to get, if they had not been so pitifully ignorant. But they had come to a new country, where everything was different, including the food. They had always been accustomed to eat a great deal of smoked sausage, and how could they know that what they bought in America was not the same, that its color was made by chemicals, and that its smoky flavor by more chemicals, and that it was full of potato flour besides? Potato flour is the waste of potato after the starch and alcohol have been extracted. It has no more food value than so much wood and as its use as a food adulterant is a penal offense in Europe, thousands of tons of it are shipped to America every year. It was amazing what quantities of food such as this were needed every day by eleven hungry persons. A dollar sixty-five a day was simply not enough to feed them, and there was no use trying. And so each week they made an inroad upon the pitiful little bank account that Ona had begun. Because the account was in her name, it was possible for her to keep this a secret from her husband, and to keep the heart-sickness of it for her own. It would have been better if Jurgis had been really ill, if he had not been able to think, 
for he had no resources such as most invalids have. All he could do was to lie there and toss about from side to side. Now and then he would break into cursing, regardless of everything, and now and then his impatience would get the better of him, and he would try to get up, and poor Teta Elzbieta would have to plead with him in a frenzy. Elzbieta was all alone with him the greater part of the time. She would sit and smooth his forehead by the hour, and talk to him and try to make him forget. Sometimes it would be too cold for the children to go to school, and they would have to play in the kitchen where Jurgis was, because it was the only room that was half warm. These were dreadful times, for Jurgis would get as cross as any bear. He was scarcely to be blamed, for he had enough to worry him, and it was hard when he was trying to take a nap to be kept awake by noisy and peevish children. Elzbieta's only resource in those times was little Antonas. Indeed, it would be hard to say how they could have gotten along at all if it had not been for little Antonas. It was the one consolation of Jurgis' long imprisonment that now he had time to look at his baby. Teta Elzbieta would put the clothes-basket in which the baby slept alongside of his mattress, and Jurgis would lie upon one elbow and watch him by the hour imagining things. Then little Antonas would open his eyes. He was beginning to take notice of things now, and he would smile. How he would smile! So Jurgis would begin to forget and be happy, because he was in a world where there was a thing so beautiful as the smile of little Antonas, and because such a world could not but be good at the heart of it. He looked more like his father every hour, Elzbieta would say, and said it many times a day, because she saw that it pleased Jurgis. The poor little terror-stricken woman was planning all day and all night to soothe the prison giant who was entrusted to her care. Jurgis, who knew nothing about the age-long and everlasting hypocrisy of woman, would take the bait and grin with delight and then he would hold his finger in front of little Antonas' eyes, and move it this way and that, and laugh with glee to see the baby follow it. There is no pet quite so fascinating as a baby. He would look into Jurgis' face with such uncanny seriousness, and Jurgis would start and cry, Halak, look, Muma, he knows his papa, he does, he does! Tumana Shirdele, the little rascal! End of chapter 11. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 12 of The Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 12. For three weeks after his injury, Jurgis never got up from bed. It was a very obstinate sprain. The swelling would not go down, and the pain still continued. At the end of that time, however, he would contain himself no longer, and began trying to walk a little every day, laboring to persuade himself that he was better. No arguments could stop him, and three or four days later he declared that he was going back to work. He limped to the cars and got to Brown's, where he found that the boss had kept his place, that is, was willing to turn out into the snow the poor devil he had hired in the meantime, 
Every now and then the pain would force Jurgis to stop work, but he stuck it out till nearly an hour before closing. Then he was forced to acknowledge that he could not go on without fainting. It almost broke his heart to do it, and he stood leaning against a pillar and weeping like a child. Two of the men had to help him to the car, and when he got out he had to sit down and wait in the snow till someone came along. So they put him to bed again and sent for the doctor, as they ought to have done in the beginning. It transpired that he had twisted a tendon out of place and could never have gotten well without attention. Then he gripped the sides of the bed and shut his teeth together and turned white with agony while the doctor pulled and wrenched away at his swollen ankle. When finally the doctor left he told him that he would have to lie quiet for two months, and that if he went to work before that time he might lame himself for life. Three days later there came another heavy snowstorm, and Jonas and Maria and Ona and little Stanislavus all set out together an hour before daybreak to try to get to the yards. About noon the last two came back, the boy screaming with pain. His fingers were all frosted, it seemed. They had had to give up trying to get to the yards, and had nearly perished in a drift. All that they knew how to do was to hold the frozen fingers near the fire, and so little Stanislavus spent most of the day dancing about in horrible agony till Jurgis flew into a passion of nervous rage and swore like a madman, declaring that he would kill him if he did not stop. All that day and night the family was half-crazed with fear that Ona and the little boy had lost their places, and in the morning they set out earlier than ever, after the little fellow had been beaten with a stick by Jurgis. There could be no trifling in a case like this. It was a matter of life and death. Little Stanislavus could not be expected to realize that he might a great deal better freeze in the snowdrift than lose his job at the lard machine. Ona was quite certain that she would find her place gone, and was all unnerved when she finally got to Brown's and found that the forelady herself had failed to come, and was therefore compelled to be lenient. One of the consequences of this episode was that the first joints of three of the little boy's fingers were permanently disabled, and another that, thereafter, he always had to be beaten before he set out to work, whenever there was fresh snow on the ground. Jurgis was called upon to do the beating, and as it hurt his foot he did it with a vengeance, but it did not tend to add to the sweetness of his temper. They say that the best dog will turn cross if he be kept chained all the time, and it was the same with the man. He had not a thing to do all day but lie and curse his fate, and the time came when he wanted to curse everything. This was never for very long, however, for when Ona began to cry Jurgis could not stay angry. The poor fellow looked like a homeless ghost, with his cheeks sunken in and his long black hair straggling into his eyes. He was too discouraged to cut it or to think about his appearance. His muscles were wasting away, and what were left were soft and flabby. He had no appetite, and they could not afford to tempt him with delicacies. It was better, he said, that he should not eat. It was a saving. About the end of March he had got hold of Ona's bank book, 
and learned that there was only three dollars left to them in the world. But perhaps the worst of the consequences of this long siege was that they lost another member of their family. Brother Jonas disappeared. One Saturday night he did not come home, and thereafter all their efforts to get trace of him were futile. It was said by the boss at Durham's that he had gotten his week's money and left there. That might not be true, of course, for sometimes they would say that when a man had been killed. It was the easiest way out of it for all concerned. When, for instance, a man had fallen into one of the rendering tanks and had been made into pure leaf lard and peerless fertilizer, there was no use letting the fact out and making his family unhappy. More probable, however, was the theory that Jonas had deserted them, and gone on the road, seeking happiness. He had been discontented for a long time, and not without some cause. He paid good board, and was yet obliged to live in a family where nobody had enough to eat, and Maria would keep giving them all her money, and of course he could not but feel that he was called upon to do the same. Then there were crying brats, and all sorts of misery. A man would have had to be a good deal of a hero to stand it all without grumbling, and Jonas was not in the least a hero. He was simply a weather-beaten old fellow who liked to have a good supper and sit in the corner by the fire and smoke his pipe in peace before he went to bed. Here there was not room by the fire, and through the winter the kitchen had seldom been warm enough for comfort. So, with the springtime, what was more likely than that the wild idea of escaping had come to him? Two years he had been yoked like a horse to a half-ton truck in Durham's dark cellars, with never a rest, save on Sundays and four holidays in the year, and with never a word of thanks, only kicks and blows and curses, such as no decent dog would have stood. And now the winter was over and the spring winds were blowing, and with a day's walk a man might put the smoke of Packingtown behind him forever, and be where the grass was green and the flowers all the colors of the rainbow. But now the income of the family was cut down more than one-third, and the food demand was cut only one-eleventh, so that they were worse off than ever, and they were borrowing money from Maria and eating up her bank account, and spoiling once again her hopes of marriage and happiness. And they were even going into debt to Tomosius Kuschleika, and letting him impoverish himself. Poor Tomosius was a man without any relatives, and with a wonderful talent besides, and he ought to have made money and prospered, but he had fallen in love, and so given hostages to fortune, and was doomed to be dragged down too. So it was finally decided that two more of the children would have to leave school. Next to Stanislovus, who was now fifteen, there was a little girl, little Kotrina, who was two years younger, and then two boys, Vilimas, who was eleven, and Nekalayus, who was ten. Both of these last were bright boys, and there was no reason why their family should starve when tens of thousands of children no older were earning their own livings. So one morning they were given a quarter apiece and a roll with a sausage in it, and, with their minds top-heavy with good advice, were sent out to make their way to the city and learn to sell newspapers. 
they came back late at night in tears, having walked for the five or six miles to report that a man had offered to take them to a place where they sold newspapers, and had taken their money and gone into a store to get them, and never more been seen. So they both received a whipping, and the next morning set out again. This time they found the newspaper place and procured their stock, and after wandering about till nearly noontime, saying, Paper? to everyone they saw, they had all their stock taken away and received a thrashing besides from a big newsman upon whose territory they had trespassed. Fortunately, however, they had already sold some papers, and came back with nearly as much as they started with. After a week of mishaps such as these, the two little fellows began to learn the ways of the trade, the names of the different papers, and how many of each to get, and what sort of people to offer them to, and where to go, and where to stay away from. After this, leaving home at four o'clock in the morning, and running about the streets, first with morning papers and then with evening, they might come home late at night with twenty or thirty cents apiece, possibly as much as forty cents. From this they had to deduct their car fare, since the distance was so great, but after a while they made friends and learned still more, and then they would save their car fare. They would get on a car when the conductor was not looking and hide in the crowd, and three times out of four he would not ask for their fares, either not seeing them or thinking they had already paid it, or, if he did ask, they would hunt through their pockets and then begin to cry, and either have their fares paid by some kind old lady, or else try the trick again on a new car. All this was fair play, they felt. Whose fault was it that at the hours when working men were going to their work and back the cars were so crowded that the conductors could not collect all the fares? And besides, the companies were thieves, people said had stolen all their franchises with the help of scoundrelly politicians. Now that the winter was by, and there was no more danger of snow, and no more coal to buy, and another room warm enough to put the children into when they cried, and enough money to get along from week to week with, Jurgis was less terrible than he had been. A man can get used to anything in the course of time, and Jurgis had gotten used to lying about the house. Ona saw this, and was very careful not to destroy his peace of mind by letting him know how very much pain she was suffering. It was now the time of the spring rains, and Ona had often to ride to her work, in spite of the expense. She was getting paler every day, and sometimes, in spite of her good resolutions, it pained her that Jurgis did not notice it. She wondered if he cared for her as much as ever, if all this misery was not wearing out his love. She had to be away from him all the time, and bear her own troubles while he was bearing his, and then, when she came home, she was so worn out, and whenever they talked they had only their worries to talk of. Truly it was hard in such a life to keep any sentiment alive. The woe of this would flame up in Ona sometimes. At night she would suddenly clasp her big husband in her arms and break into passionate weeping, demanding to know if he really loved her. Poor Jurgis, who had in truth grown more matter-of-fact under the endless pressure of penury, would not know what to make of these things, 
and could only try to recollect when he had last been cross, and so Ona would have to forgive him and sob herself to sleep. The latter part of April Jurgis went to see the doctor, and was given a bandage to lace about his ankle, and told that he might go back to work. It needed more than the permission of the doctor, however, for when he showed up on the killing floor of Brown's he was told by the foreman that it had not been possible to keep his job for him. Jurgis knew that this meant simply that the foreman had found someone else to do the work as well, and did not want to bother to make a change. He stood in the doorway, looking mournfully on, seeing his friends and companions at work, and feeling like an outcast. Then he went out and took his place with the mob of the unemployed. This time, however, Jurgis did not have the same fine confidence, nor the same reason for it. He was no longer the finest-looking man in the throng, and the bosses no longer made for him. He was thin and haggard, and his clothes were seedy, and he looked miserable. And there were hundreds who looked and felt just like him, and who had been wandering about Packingtown for months begging for work. This was a critical time in Jurgis' life, and if he had been a weaker man he would have gone the way the rest did. Those out-of-work wretches would stand about the packing-houses every morning till the police drove them away, and then they would scatter among the saloons. Very few of them had the nerve to face the rebuffs that they would encounter by trying to get into the buildings to interview the bosses. If they did not get a chance in the morning there would be nothing to do but hang about the saloons the rest of the day and night. Jurgis was saved from all this, partly to be sure because it was pleasant weather, and there was no need to be indoors, but mainly because he carried with him always the pitiful little face of his wife. He must get work, he told himself, fighting the battle with despair every hour of the day. He must get work. He must have a place again, and some money saved up before the next winter came. But there was no work for him. He sought out all the members of his union. Jurgis had stuck to the union through all this, and begged them to speak a word for him. He went to everyone he knew, asking for a chance, there or anywhere. He wandered all day through the buildings, and in a week or two when he had been all over the yards and into every room to which he had access and learned that there was not a job anywhere, he persuaded himself that there might have been a change in the places he had first visited, and began the round all over, till finally the watchmen and the spotters of the companies came to know him by sight and to order him out with threats. Then there was nothing more for him to do but go with the crowd in the morning and keep in the front row and look eager, and when he failed, go back home and play with little Kotrina and the baby. The peculiar bitterness of all this was that Jurgis saw so plainly the meaning of it. In the beginning he had been fresh and strong, and he had gotten a job the first day, but now he was second-hand, a damaged article, so to speak, and they did not want him. They had got the best of him, they had worn him out with their speeding up and their carelessness, and now they had thrown him away. And Jurgis would make the acquaintance of others of these unemployed men, 
and find that they had all had the same experience. There were some, of course, who had wandered in from other places, who had been ground up in other mills. There were others who were out from their own fault, some, for instance, who had not been able to stand the awful grind without drink. The vast majority, however, were simply the worn-out parts of the great merciless packing machine. They had toiled there and kept up with the pace, some of them for ten or twenty years, until finally the time had come when they could not keep up with it any more. Some had been frankly told that they were too old, that a spryer man was needed. Others had given occasion by some act of carelessness or incompetence. With most, however, the occasion had been the same as with Jurgis. They had been overworked and underfed so long, and finally some disease had lain them on their backs, or they had cut themselves and had blood poisoning, or met with some other accident. When a man came back after that he would get his place back only by the courtesy of the boss. To this there was no exception, save when the accident was one for which the firm was liable. In that case they would send a slippery lawyer to see him, first to try to get him to sign away his claims, but if he was too smart for that, to promise him that he and his should always be provided with work. This promise they would keep, strictly and to the letter, for two years. Two years was the statute of limitations, and after that the victim could not sue. What happened to a man after any of these things all depended upon the circumstances. If he were of the highly skilled workers he would probably have enough saved up to tide him over. The best-paid men, the splitters, made fifty cents an hour, which would be five or six dollars a day in the rush seasons, and one or two in the dullest. A man could live and save on that, but then there were only half a dozen splitters in each place, and one of them that Jurgis knew had a family of twenty-two children, all hoping to grow up to be splitters like their father. For an unskilled man who made ten dollars a week in the rush seasons and five in the dull, it all depended upon his age and the number he had depended upon him. An unmarried man could save if he did not drink, and if he was absolutely selfish, that is, if he paid no heed to the demands of his old parents, or of his little brothers and sisters, or of any other relatives he might have, as well as of the members of his union and his chums, and the people who might be starving to death next door. End of chapter 12 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 13 of The Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 13. During this time that Jurgis was looking for work occurred the death of little Christophorus, one of the children of Teta Elzbieta. Both Christophorus and his brother Josipas were cripples the latter having lost one leg by having it run over, and Christophorus having congenital dislocation of the hip which made it impossible for him to ever walk. He was the last of Teta Elzbieta's children, 
and perhaps he had been intended by nature to let her know that she had had enough. At any rate, he was wretchedly sick and undersized. He had the rickets, and though he was over three years old, he was no bigger than an ordinary child of one. All day long he would crawl around the floor in a filthy little dress, whining and fretting. Because the floor was full of draughts, he was always catching cold and snuffling because his nose ran. This made him a nuisance and a source of endless trouble in the family for his mother with unnatural perversity loved him best of all her children, and made a perpetual fuss over him, would let him do anything undisturbed, and would burst into tears when his fretting drove Jurgis wild. And now he died. Perhaps it was the smoked sausage he had eaten that morning, which may have been made out of some of the tubercular pork that was condemned as unfit for export. At any rate, an hour after eating it, the child had begun to cry with pain, and in another hour he was rolling about on the floor in convulsions. Little Cotrina, who was all alone with him, ran out screaming for help, and after a while a doctor came, but not until Christophorus had howled his last howl. No one was really sorry about this except poor Elzbieta, who was inconsolable. Jurgis announced that so far as he was concerned, the child would have to be buried by the city, since they had no money for a funeral, and at this the poor woman almost went out of her senses, wringing her hands and screaming with grief and despair. Her child to be buried in a pauper's grave, and her stepdaughter to stand by and hear it said without protesting? It was enough to make Ona's father rise up out of his grave to rebuke her. If it had come to this, they might as well give up at once and be buried all of them together. In the end Maria said that she would help with ten dollars, and Jurgis being still obdurate, Elzbieta went in tears and begged the money from the neighbors. And so little Christophorus had a mass and a hearse with white plumes on it, and a tiny plot in a graveyard with a wooden cross to mark the place. The poor mother was not the same for months after that. The mere sight of the floor where little Christophorus had crawled about would make her weep. He had never had a fair chance, poor little fellow, she would say. He had been handicapped from his birth. If only she had heard about it in time, so that she might have had that great doctor to cure him of his lameness. Some time ago Elzbieta was told, a Chicago billionaire had paid a fortune to bring a great European surgeon over to cure his little daughter of the same disease from which Chrysophorus had suffered, and because this surgeon had to have bodies to demonstrate upon, he announced that he would treat the children of the poor, a piece of magnanimity over which the papers became quite eloquent. Elzbieta at last did not read the papers, and no one had told her but perhaps it was as well, for just then they would not have had the car-fare to spare to go every day to wait upon the surgeon, nor, for that matter, anybody with the time to take the child. All this while that he was seeking for work there was a dark shadow hanging over Jurgis, as if a savage beast were lurking somewhere in the pathway of his life, and he knew it, and yet could not help approaching the place. 
There are all stages of being out of work in Packingtown, and he faced in dread the prospect of reaching the lowest. There is a place that waits for the lowest man, the fertilizer plant. The men would talk about it in awe-stricken whispers. Not more than one in ten had ever really tried it. The other nine had contented themselves with hearsay evidence and a peep through the door. There were some things worse than even starving to death. They would ask Jurgis if he had worked there yet, and if he meant to, and Jurgis would debate the matter with himself. As poor as they were, and making all the sacrifices that they were, would he dare to refuse any sort of work that was offered to him, be it as horrible as ever it could? Would he dare to go home and eat bread that had been earned by Ona, weak and complaining as she was, knowing that he had been given a chance and had not had the nerve to take it? And yet he might argue that way with himself all day, and one glimpse into the fertilizer works would send him away again, shuddering. He was a man, and he would do his duty. He went and made application, but surely he was not also required to hope for success. The fertilizer works of Durham's lay away from the rest of the plant. Few visitors ever saw them, and the few who did would come out looking like Dante of whom the peasants declared that he had been into hell. To this part of the yards came all the tankage and the waste products of all sorts. Here they dried out the bones, and in suffocating cellars where the daylight never came you might see men and women and children bending over whirling machines and sawing bits of bone into all sorts of shapes, breathing their lungs full of the fine dust and doomed to die, every one of them, within a certain definite time. Here they made the blood into albumen, and made other foul-smelling things into things still more foul-smelling. In the corridors and caverns where it was done you might lose yourself as in the great caves of Kentucky. In the dust and the steam the electric lights would shine like far-off twinkling stars, red and blue-green and purple stars, according to the color of the mist and the brew from which it came. For the odors of these ghastly charnel-houses there may be words in Lithuanian, but there are none in English. The person entering would have to summon his courage as for a cold-water plunge. He would go in like a man swimming under water. He would put his handkerchief over his face, and begin to cough and choke, and then if he were still obstinate he would find his head beginning to ring and the veins in his forehead to throb, until, finally, he would be assailed by an overpowering blast of ammonia fumes, and would turn and run for his life and come out half-dazed. On top of this were the rooms where they dried the tankage, the mass of brown stringy stuff that was left after the waste portions of the carcasses had had the lard and tallow dried out of them. This dried material they would then grind to a fine powder, and after they had mixed it up well with the mysterious but inoffensive brown rock which they brought in and ground up by the hundreds of carloads for that purpose, the substance was ready to be put into bags and sent out to the world as any one of a hundred different brands of standard bone phosphate. 
and then the farmer in Maine or California or Texas would buy this at, say, $25 a ton and plant it with his corn, and for several days after the operation the fields would have a strong odor, and the farmer and his wagon and the very horses that had hauled it would all have it too. In Packingtown the fertilizer is pure, instead of being a flavoring, and instead of a ton or so spread out on several acres under the open sky, there are hundreds and thousands of tons of it in one building, heaped here and there in haystack piles, covering the floor several inches deep, and filling the air with a choking dust that becomes a blinding sandstorm when the wind stirs. It was to this building that Jurgis came daily, as if dragged by an unseen hand. The month of May was an exceptionally cool one, and his secret prayers were granted, but early in June there came a record-breaking hot spell, and after that there were men wanted in the fertilizer mill. The boss of the grinding-room had come to know Jurgis by this time and had marked him for a likely man, and so when he came to the door about two o'clock this breathless hot day he felt a sudden spasm of pain shoot through him. The boss beckoned to him. In ten minutes more Jurgis had pulled off his coat and overshirt and set his teeth together and gone to work. Here was one more difficulty for him to meet and conquer. His labor took him about one minute to learn. Before him was one of the vents of the mill in which the fertilizer was being ground, rushing forth in a great brown river, with the spray of the finest dust flung forth in clouds. Jurgis was given a shovel, and along with half a dozen others it was his task to shovel this fertilizer into carts. That others were at work he knew by the sound, and by the fact that he sometimes collided with them, otherwise they might as well not have been there, for in the blinding dust-storm a man could not see six feet in front of his face. When he had filled one cart he had to grope around him until another came, and if there was none on hand he continued to grope till one arrived. In five minutes he was, of course, a mass of fertilizer from head to feet. They gave him a sponge to tie over his mouth so that he could breathe, but the sponge did not prevent his lips and eyelids from caking up with it and his ears from filling solid. He looked like a brown ghost at twilight. From hair to shoes he became the color of the building and of everything in it, and for that matter a hundred yards outside it. The building had to be left open, and when the wind blew Durham and company lost a great deal of fertilizer. Working in his shirt-sleeves and with the thermometer at over a hundred, the phosphates soaked in through every pore of Jurgis' skin and in five minutes he had a headache, and in fifteen was almost dazed. The blood was pounding in his brain like an engine's throbbing. There was a frightful pain in the top of his skull, and he could hardly control his hands. Still, with the memory of his four months' siege behind him, he fought on in a frenzy of determination, and half an hour later he began to vomit. He vomited until it seemed as if his innards must be torn into shreds. A man could get used to the fertilizer mill, the boss had said, if he would make up his mind to it, 
but Jurgis now began to see that it was a question of making up his stomach. At the end of that day of horror he could scarcely stand. He had to catch himself now and then, and lean against a building and get his bearings. Most of the men, when they came out, made straight for a saloon. They seemed to place fertilizer and rattlesnake poison in one class. But Jurgis was too ill to think of drinking. He could only make his way to the street and stagger onto a car. He had a sense of humor, and later on, when he became an old hand, he used to think it fun to board a streetcar and see what happened. Now, however, he was too ill to notice it, how the people in the car began to gasp and sputter, to put their handkerchiefs to their noses and transfix him with furious glances. Jurgis only knew that a man in front of him immediately got up and gave him a seat, and that half a minute later the two people on each side of him got up, and that in a full minute the crowded car was nearly empty, those passengers who could not get room on the platform having gotten out to walk. Of course Jurgis had made his home a miniature fertilizer mill a minute after entering. The stuff was half an inch deep in his skin, his whole system was full of it, and it would have taken a week not merely of scrubbing but of vigorous exercise to get it out of him. As it was, he could be compared with nothing known to men, save that newest discovery of the savants, a substance which emits energy for an unlimited time, without being itself in the least diminished in power. He smelled so that he made all the food at the table taste, and set the whole family to vomiting. For himself it was three days before he could keep anything upon his stomach. He might wash his hands and use a knife and fork, but were not his mouth and throat filled with the poison? And still Jurgis stuck it out. In spite of splitting headaches he would stagger down to the plant and take up his stand once more and begin to shovel into blinding clouds of dust. And so at the end of the week he was a fertilizer man for life. He was able to eat again, and though his head never stopped aching, it ceased to be so bad that he could not work. So there passed another summer. It was a summer of prosperity all over the country, and the country ate generously of packing-house products, and there was plenty of work for all the family, in spite of the packers' efforts to keep a superfluidity of labor. They were again able to pay their debts and to begin to save a little sum, but there were one or two sacrifices they considered too heavy to be made for long. It was too bad that the boys should have to sell papers at their age. It was utterly useless to caution them and plead with them. Quite without knowing it they were taking on the tone of their new environment. They were learning to swear in voluble English. They were learning to pick up cigar stumps and smoke them, to pass hours of their time gambling with pennies and dice and cigarette cards. They were learning the location of all the houses of prostitution on the levee, and the names of the madams who kept them, and the days when they gave their state banquets, which the police captains and the big politicians all attended. If a visiting country customer were to ask them, they could show him which was Hinky Dink's famous saloon, and could even point out to him by name the different gamblers and thugs and hold-up men who made the place their headquarters. 
and worse yet, the boys were getting out of the habit of coming home at night. What was the use, they would ask, of wasting time and energy and a possible car fare, riding out to the stockyards every night when the weather was pleasant and they could crawl under a truck or into an empty doorway and sleep exactly as well? So long as they brought home a half-dollar for each day, what mattered it when they brought it? But Jurgis declared that from this to ceasing to come at all would not be a very long step, and so it was decided that Vilmas and Nikolaios should return to school in the fall, and that instead Esbeta should go out and get some work, her place at home being taken by her younger daughter. Little Kotrina was like most children of the poor, prematurely made old. She had to take care of her little brother, who was a cripple, and also of the baby. She had to cook the meals and wash the dishes and clean house, and have supper ready when the workers came home in the evening. She was only thirteen and small for her age, but she did all this without a murmur, and her mother went out and, after trudging a couple days about the yards, settled down as a servant of a sausage machine. Elzbieta was used to working, but she found this change a hard one, for the reason that she had to stand motionless upon her feet from seven o'clock in the morning till half-past twelve, and again from one till half-past five. For the first few days it seemed to her that she could not stand it. She suffered almost as much as Jurgis had from the fertilizer, and would come out at sundown with her head fairly reeling. Besides this, she was working in one of the dark holes by electric light, and the dampness too was deadly. There were always puddles of water on the floor and a sickening odor of moist flesh in the room. The people who worked there followed the ancient custom of nature, whereby the ptarmigan is the color of dead leaves in the fall and of snow in the winter, and the chameleon, who is black when he lies upon a stump, and turns green when he moves to a leaf. The men and women who worked in this department were precisely the color of the fresh country sausage they made. The sausage room was an interesting place to visit, for two or three minutes, and provided that you did not look at the people. The machines were perhaps the most wonderful things in the entire plant. Presumably sausages were once chopped and stuffed by hand and if so it would be interesting to know how many workers had been displaced by these inventions. On one side of the room were the hoppers, into which men shoveled loads of meat and wheelbarrows full of spices. In these great bowls were whirling knives that made two thousand revolutions a minute, and when the meat was ground fine and adulterated with potato flour and well mixed with water, it was forced to the stuffing machines on the other side of the room. The latter were tended by women. There was a sort of spout like the nozzle of a hose, and one of the women would take a long string of casing and put the end over the nozzle and then work the whole thing on, as one works on the finger of a tight glove. This string would be twenty or thirty feet long, but the woman would have it all on in a jiffy, and when she had several on she would press a lever and a stream of sausage meat would be shot out, taking the casing with it as it came. Thus one might stand and see appear 
miraculously born from the machine, a wriggling snake of sausage of incredible length. In front was a big pan which caught these creatures, and two more women who seized them as fast as they appeared and twisted them into links. This was, for the uninitiated, the most perplexing work of all, for all that the woman had to give was a single turn of the wrist, and in some way she contrived to give it so that instead of an endless chain of sausages, one after another, there grew under her hands a string of sausages, all dangling from a single center. It was quite like the feet of a prestidigitator, for the woman worked so fast that the eye could literally not follow her, and there was only a mist of motion and tangle after tangle of sausages appearing. In the midst of the mist, however, the visitor would suddenly notice the tense set face with the two wrinkles graven in the forehead and the ghastly pallor of the cheeks, and then he would suddenly recollect that it was time he was going on. The woman did not go on. She stayed right there, hour after hour, day after day, year after year, twisting sausage links and racing with death. It was piecework, and she was apt to have a family to keep alive, and stern and ruthless economic laws had arranged it that she could only do this by working just as she did, with all her soul upon her work and with never an instant for a glance at the well-dressed ladies and gentlemen who came to stare at her, as at some wild beast in a menagerie. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 14 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 14 With one member trimming beef in a cannery and another working in a sausage factory, the family had a first-hand knowledge of the great majority of Packingtown swindles. For it was the custom, as they found, whenever meat was so spoiled that it could not be used for anything else, either to can it or else to chop it up into sausage. With what had been told them by Jonas, who had worked in the pickle rooms, they could now study the whole of the spoiled meat industry on the inside, and read a new and grim meaning into that old Packingtown jest, that they use everything of the pig except the squeal. Jonas had told them how the meat that was taken out of pickle would often be found sour, and how they would rub it up with soda to take away the smell, and sell it to be eaten on free lunch counters. Also, of all the miracles of chemistry which they performed, giving to any sort of meat, fresh or salted, whole or chopped, any color and any flavor and any odor they chose. In the pickling of hams they had an ingenious apparatus, by which they saved time and increased the capacity of the plant. A machine consisting of a hollow needle, attached to a pump, by plunging this needle into the meat and working with his foot, a man could fill a ham with pickle in a few seconds. And yet, in spite of this, there would be hams found spoiled, some of them with an odor so bad that a man could hardly bear to be in the room with them. To pump into these the packers had a second and much stronger pickle which destroyed the odor, 
a process known to the workers as giving them thirty per cent. Also, after the hams had been smoked, there would be found some that had gone to the bad. Formerly these had been sold as number three grade, but later on some ingenious person had hit upon a new device, and now they would extract the bone, about which the bad part generally lay, and insert in the hole a white-hot iron. After this invention there was no longer number one, number two, and three grade. There was only number one grade. The packers were always originating such schemes. They had what they called boneless hams, which were all the odds and ends of pork stuffed into casings, and California hams, which were the shoulders with big knuckle joints and nearly all the meat cut out, and fancy skinned hams, which were made of the oldest hogs, whose skins were so heavy and coarse that no one would buy them, that is, until they had been cooked and chopped fine and labeled head cheese. It was only when the whole ham was spoiled that it came into the department of Elzbeta, cut up by the two thousand revolutions a minute flyers and mixed with half a ton of other meat, no odor that ever was in a ham could make any difference. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected, and that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor, in the dirt and sawdust, where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles in rooms, and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it, and thousands of rats would race about on it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hand over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of the dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. This is no fairy story, and no joke. The meat would be shoveled into carts, and the man who did the shoveling would not trouble to lift out a rat even when he saw one. There were things that went into the sausage in comparison with which a poisoned rat was a tidbit. There was no place for the men to wash their hands before they ate their dinner, and so they made a practice of washing them in the water that was to be ladled into the sausage. There were the butt-ends of smoked meat, and the scraps of corned beef, and all the odds and ends of the waste of the plants that would be dumped into old barrels in the cellar and left there. Under the system of rigid economy which the packers enforced there were some jobs that it only paid to do once in a long time, and among these was the cleaning out of the waste barrels. Every spring they did it, and in the barrels would be dirt and rust and old nails and stale water, and cartload after cartload of it would be taken up and dumped into the hoppers with fresh meat and sent out to the public's breakfast. Some of it they would make into smoked sausage, but as the smoking took time and was therefore expensive, they would call upon their chemistry department and preserve it with borax and color it with gelatin to make it brown. All of their sausage came out of the same bowl, but when they came to wrap it they would stamp some of it special, 
and for this they would charge two cents more a pound. Such were the new surroundings in which Elzbieta was placed, and such was the work she was compelled to do. It was stupefying, brutalizing work. It left her no time to think, no strength for anything. She was part of the machine she tended, and every faculty that was not needed for the machine was doomed to be crushed out of existence. There was only one mercy about the cruel grind, that it gave her the gift of insensibility. Little by little she sank into a torpor. She fell silent. She would meet Jurgis and Ona in the evening, and the three would walk home together, often without saying a word. Ona, too, was falling into a habit of silence, Ona, who had once gone about singing like a bird. She was sick and miserable, and often she would barely have strength enough to drag herself home. And there they would eat what they had to eat, and afterward, because there was only their misery to talk of, they would crawl into bed and fall into a stupor and never stir until it was time to get up again and dress by candlelight, and go back to the machines. They were so numbed that they did not even suffer much from hunger. Now only the children continued to fret when the food ran short. Yet the soul of Ona was not dead. The souls of none of them were dead, but only sleeping. And now and then they would waken, and these were cruel times. The gates of memory would roll open, Old joys would stretch out their arms to them, old hopes and dreams would call to them, and they would stir beneath the burden that lay upon them and feel its forever immeasurable weight. They could not even cry out beneath it, but anguish would seize them more dreadful than the agony of death. It was a thing scarcely to be spoken, a thing never spoken by all the world, that will not know its own defeat they were beaten. They had lost the game. They were swept aside. It was not less tragic because it was so sordid, because it had to do with wages and grocery bills and rents. They had dreamed of freedom, of a chance to look about them and learn something, to be decent and clean, to see their child grow up to be strong. And now it was all gone. It would never be. They had played the game, and they had lost. Six years more of toil they had to face before they could expect the least respite, the cessation of the payments upon the house, and how cruelly certain it was that they could never stand six years of such a life as they were living. They were lost, they were going down, and there was no deliverance for them, no hope. For all the help it gave them the vast city in which they lived might have been an ocean waste, a wilderness, a desert, a tomb. So often this mood would come to Ona in the night-time, when something wakened her. She would lie, afraid of the beating of her own heart, fronting the blood-red eyes of the old primeval terror of life. Once she cried aloud and woke Jurgis who was tired and cross. After that she learned to weep silently. Their moods so seldom came together now. It was as if their hopes were buried in separate graves. 
Jurgis, being a man, had troubles of his own. There was another specter following him. He had never spoken of it, nor would he allow anyone else to speak of it. He had never acknowledged its existence to himself. Yet the battle with it took all the manhood that he had, and once or twice, alas, a little more. Jurgis had discovered drink. He was working in the steaming pit of hell, day after day, week after week, until now there was not an organ of his body that did its work without pain, until the sound of ocean-breakers echoed in his head day and night, and the buildings swayed and danced before him as he went down the street. And from all the unending horror of this there was a respite, a deliverance. He could drink he could forget the pain, he could slip off the burden, he would see clearly again, he would be master of his brain, of his thoughts, of his will. His dead self would stir in him, and he would find himself laughing and cracking jokes with his companions, he would be a man again, and master of his life. It was not an easy thing for Jurgis to take more than two or three drinks. With the first drink he could eat a meal, and he could persuade himself that that was economy. With the second he could eat another meal, but there would come a time when he could eat no more, and then to pay for a drink was an unthinkable extravagance, a defiance of the age-old instincts of his hunger-haunted class. One day, however, he took the plunge, and drank up all that he had in his pockets, and went home half-piped as the men phrase it. He was happier than he had been in a year, and yet because he knew that the happiness would not last he was savage, too with those who would wreck it, and with the world and with his life. And then again beneath this he was sick with the shame of himself. Afterward when he saw the despair of his family and reckoned up the money he had spent, the tears came into his eyes and he began the long battle with the specter. It was a battle that had no end, that never could have one, but Jurgis did not realize that very clearly. He was not given much time for reflection. He simply knew that he was always fighting. Steeped in misery and despair as he was, merely to walk down the street was to be put upon the rack. There was surely a saloon on the corner, perhaps on all four corners, and some in the middle of the block as well, and each one stretched out a hand to him, each one had a personality of its own, allurements unlike any other. Going and coming, before sunrise and after dark, there was warmth and a glow of light, and the steam of hot food, and perhaps music, or a friendly face, and a word of good cheer. Jurgis developed a fondness for having Ona on his arm whenever he went out on the street, and he would hold her tightly and walk fast. It was pitiful to have Ona know of this, it drove him wild to think of it. The thing was not fair, for Ona had never tasted drink, and so could not understand. Sometimes, in desperate hours, he would find himself wishing that she might learn what it was so that he need not be ashamed in her presence. They might drink together and escape from the horror, escape for a while, come what would. So there came a time 
when nearly all the conscious life of Jurgis consisted of a struggle with the craving for liquor. He would have ugly moods, when he hated Ona and the whole family, because they stood in his way. He was a fool to have married, he had tied himself down, had made himself a slave. It was all because he was a married man that he was compelled to stay in the yards. If it had not been for that he might have gone off like Jonas, and to hell with the packers. There were few single men in the fertilizer mill, and those few were working only for a chance to escape. Meantime, too, they had something to think about while they worked. They had the memory of the last time they had been drunk, and the hope of the time when they would be drunk again. As for Jurgis, he was expected to bring home every penny. He could not even go with the men at noontime. He was supposed to sit down and eat his dinner on a pile of fertilizer dust. This was not always his mood, of course. He still loved his family. But just now was a time of trial. Poor little Antonas, for instance, who had never failed to win him with a smile. Little Antonas was not smiling just now, being a mass of fiery red pimples. He had had all the diseases that babies are heir to, in quick succession. Scarlet fever, mumps, and whooping cough in the first year, and now he was down with the measles. There was no one to attend to him but Kotrina. There was no doctor to help him, because they were too poor, and children did not die of the measles, at least not often. Now and then Kotrina would find time to sob over his woes, but for the greater part of the time he had to be left alone, barricaded upon the bed. The floor was full of drafts, and if he caught cold he would die. At night he was tied down lest he should kick the covers off him while the family lay in their stupor of exhaustion. He would lie and scream for hours, almost in convulsions, and then when he was worn out he would lie whimpering and wailing in his torment. He was burning up with fever, and his eyes were running sores. In the daytime he was a thing uncanny and impish to behold, a plaster of pimples and sweat, a great purple lump of misery. Yet all this was not really as cruel as it sounds, for sick as he was, little Antanas was the least unfortunate member of that family. He was quite able to bear his sufferings. It was as if he had all these complaints to show what a prodigy of health he was. He was the child of his parents' youth and joy. He grew up like the conjurer's rosebush, and all the world was his oyster. In general, he toddled around the kitchen all day with a lean and hungry look. The portion of the family's allowance that fell to him was not enough, and he was unrestrainable in his demand for more. Antonas was but little over a year old, and already no one but his father could manage him. It seemed as if he had taken all of his mother's strength, had left nothing for those that might come after him. Ona was with child again now, and it was a dreadful thing to contemplate. Even Jurgis, dumb and despairing as he was, could not but understand that yet other agonies were on the way, and shudder at the thought of them, for Ona was visibly going to pieces. In the first place she was developing a cough, 
like the one that had killed old Dede Antanas. She had had a trace of it ever since that fatal morning when the greedy streetcar corporation had turned her out into the rain, but now it was beginning to grow serious and to wake her up at night. Even worse than that was the fearful nervousness from which she suffered. She would have frightful headaches and fits of aimless weeping, and sometimes she would come home at night shuddering and moaning, and would fling herself down upon the bed and burst into tears. Several times she was quite beside herself and hysterical, and then Jurgis would go half mad with fright. Elzbieta would explain to him that it could not be helped, that a woman was subject to such things when she was pregnant, but he was hardly to be persuaded, and would beg and plead to know what had happened. She had never been like this before, he would argue. It was monstrous and unthinkable. It was the life she had to live, the accursed work she had to do, that was killing her, by inches. She was not fitted for it. No woman was fitted for it. No woman ought to be allowed to do such work. If the world could not keep them alive any other way it ought to kill them at once and be done with it. They ought not to marry, to have children. No working man ought to marry. If he, Jurgis, had known what a woman was like, he would have had his eyes torn out first. So he would carry on, becoming half hysterical himself which was an unbearable thing to see in a big man. Ona would pull herself together and fling herself into his arms, begging him to stop, to be still, that she would be better, it would be, all right. So she would lie and sob out her grief upon his shoulder, while he gazed at her, as helpless as a wounded animal, the target of unseen enemies. End of chapter 14. Recording by Tom Weiss. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.